want to talk to you about the spies. And I read a couple of rabbinic things, and they were just excellent and gave me a perspective on this that I'd never had before. Uh, the first one was by Rabbi Sachs on Aish, and then the second one was by Rabbi Foreman on Aleph Beta. And they look at the sin of the spies from two different perspectives, from God's perspective and from the spies' perspective. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the sin of the spies, first from the spies' perspective, what were they thinking? And then from God's perspective, why was he so upset? And then what does that mean to us? So let's start with the spies themselves. This is Rabbi Sachs. They give this bad report of the land. Oh, there are giants in the land. The cities are fortified, but we can't do it. What Sachs says, and he got it from somebody else, I don't remember who, but I'll go to Sachs and you can go to him if you want to find out, is they weren't afraid of failure, they were afraid of success. Now why? Consider that they had seen what God did to the Egyptians. And the Canaanites were small potatoes compared to the Egyptians. Egypt was sort of the big dog in the area, and the Canaanites would periodically get invaded by the Egyptians just, you know, for fun. So the idea that the Canaanites were somehow going to become a problem that was greater than the Egyptians were doesn't make any sense. The other thing is the Canaanites were terrified. You heard Rahab, where she says, everybody is terrified. Our hearts have melted within us. We know that God is God, and we know what he did to the Egyptians. We know he's bringing you, and so please do this with me so my family at least gets saved. At the Song of the Sea, just after they crossed the Red Sea, Exodus 15, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. So it isn't just 40 years later the word gets there. The word is there almost immediately. So everybody knows that the morale of the Canaanites is not going to be able to make them stand up to the people of God. So why were they afraid of success? And the answer that Sachs comes up with is they didn't want to leave the wilderness. Think about it. These are very prominent men. They live in the very presence of God. They're all clustered around the tabernacle. You've got the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They are insulated from all the cares of the world. God is around them. They get kibble from the sky. They don't have any problems. And they want to withdraw from the world. And what Sachs says, and I completely agree with him, is every religious tradition has a mechanism whereby holy men withdraw from the world. Go into a monastery, go into an ashram, become a hermit. The idea of separating yourself completely from the world and focusing entirely on God is a 
tradition that happens in all religions. So what the spies were is they were prominent men. They were insulated from the cares of the world. They were in the very presence of God. So why would they want to leave that? Well, you know, I understand they get tired of manna, but every now and then God gives them a bunch of quail, so that's okay. So why would they want to leave that? You all remember Fiddler on the Roof? We sing the song over the children every Shabbat from Fiddler. Well, there's another song in Fiddler that I'll remind you of. And the song is, If I Were a Rich Man, and I can't sing it and I won't try, but I've got the lyrics here. And down toward the end, this is Tevye, and he sings, The most important men in town would come and fawn on me. They would ask me to advise them, like a Solomon the Wise. If you please, Reb Tevye, pardon me, Reb Tevye, posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. And it wouldn't make much difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. So these, remember, are prominent men. These are the men that, if they had a synagogue, would sit right in the front row on the north side, right? So these are people that people come to talk to in the wilderness. The song continues. If I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat on the eastern wall. And I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men several hours every day and that would be the sweetest thing of all. That's the temptation of the spies. They get to sit and talk with God, talk about God. People come and ask them questions about God. They're very prominent people. The situation that they have got in the wilderness is very agreeable to them. Once they go into the land, they're just going to become another nation. They're going to have to farm, they're going to have to weed, they're going to have to fight their enemies, they're going to have to do all of the stuff that every other nation does. So they really are quite content where they are. Now, Rabbi Sachs, God bless him, since he's talking about his fellow countrymen, puts the best face on this that he can, which is to say this impulse to isolation and to going off into the presence of God, to separate yourself from the world, is common to all holy men. And that may have been their motive. Or it may simply have been, we got a good gig going here, we don't want to lose it. And so they sabotage God. Because they bring back this bad report. And remember we started off by saying at the Song of the Sea and Rahab, Israel knows that God is with them. Israel knows that Canaanites are small potatoes compared to the Egyptians. Israel knows that God is going to be able to do what he says. These guys just don't want to do that. Hence the bad report, hence spreading panic in the camp. Now, Rabbi Sachs's perspective on this is these are just holy men that were mistaken. You could also say these were guys that had a really good gig and didn't want to do anything else and defied God in that process. Take a choice. One is slightly corrupt, the other one is holy, but the net of it is still the same. Now, 
in defense of the idea that these guys just like the gig is you also notice that these guys died on the spot. Everybody else will die naturally over the next 40 years, not those 10 guys. They died right there. Which indicates to me that God was slightly ticked. So, what's God's motivation? I mean, other than the fact that I told you to go into the land, why aren't you doing it? I mean, you know, there's that motivation. But what God wants to do, and this is the important part, I think, is God wants to redeem the earth. The purpose of having Israel be a holy nation with laws given to them by God is that they will serve as an example of what's possible. So, you will have the nation Israel, who are, oh, by the way, going to be a nation of priests. That's in Exodus 19. This is uh, the negotiation before the Ten Commandments. The Lord called to him out of the mountains, him being Moses, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the definition of a priest is someone who represents the people before God. If everybody's a priest, who are the people? The rest of the world. The idea here is, I want you to be my priesthood, and I want in that process to redeem the entire world. Now, if you go back to Egypt and the plagues, the question becomes, well, why did we go through ten plagues? God was perfectly capable of slapping Egypt off to one side, reaching in, grabbing his people, walking them out on a Sunday afternoon. No big deal to God. So why ten plagues? The answer to that is, in Exodus 7, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So the purpose of the ten plagues is not to get Israel out of Egypt. It is to acquaint Egypt with who God is. When we get out, Exodus 9, this is toward the end of the plagues, present yourselves before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. This is Pharaoh. You will know who I am. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Which is to say, all this messing around we've been doing didn't have to happen. 
I could have just swatted you all out of the way and brought my people out immediately. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So the whole object of this exercise here is, as Rabbi Foreman said, a PR thing with God. First he wants to let the Egyptians know who he is, then he wants the whole world to know who he is. And we saw in the Song of the Sea that by the time Israel came out and crossed the Red Sea, everybody in the region knew it. So the whole purpose here is to redeem the entire creation that is being done by God. Israel is the first step in that process. So what I'm going to do with you guys, I'm going to bring you to me, I'm going to give you this great set of laws. And then we're going to set up a country. And you're going to be an example to the entire world. Deuteronomy 4. I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord your God is, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So God's project here is, I want you to go into the land. I want you to set up a nation. I want you to organize your nation according to these laws that I give you. And you are going to be an example to the rest of the world because I want the entire world to come in. Hence, you are a nation of priests. Remember, priests represent the people before God. And in this case, the people are the rest of the world. That was the intention. So when the spies sabotage that and say, no, 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 we want to stay here in the wilderness where we can be huddled around the tabernacle and we can discuss the holy books seven hours every day. That would be the sweetest thing of all. God says, no, it's not what I've got in mind here. And his reaction where he destroys those guys on the spot sort of leads me to believe that their motivation was not quite so pure as Rabbi Sachs thinks it was. I wasn't there, but the net of it is they have essentially tried to throw a stick in God's spokes here, and God says, no, you're not going to do that. We are going to set up a nation. You are going to go according to my rules, and you are going to become a priesthood to me because I want the rest of the world. Some scriptures there. Isaiah 56. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides 
those already gathered. Yeshua says the same thing. John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So the idea here is to redeem the entire creation. And when the spies don't cooperate with that, God swats them aside and says, this is where we're going to do it. But his motivation is, I don't want you huddled out here in the wilderness around the tabernacle staring at your navels. I want you out in the world. And the way Sachs says it, which I think is just superb, lots and lots of religions try and get people to heaven. That's not God's project. God's project is to bring heaven down to earth. God's project is to redeem the entire creation, to include the earth. So a religion whose sole focus is getting you to heaven has lost the plot. Getting to heaven is a wonderful thing. When we die, it'll happen. That's cool. That's neat. But that's not why you're here. That's not why God called you into his presence. He called you into his presence to bring heaven down here. Not to pick off Satan's stragglers and take them one at a time up to heaven. Now, the problem with the church as it exists today is what I would call pietism. Not the only one who calls it that, but that's what it is. And that's the idea. I don't want to be associated with all these sinners. I'm going to keep my skirts clean. I'm going to be pious, and I'm going to go to heaven. And if you want to come with me, that's okay. That's not the project of the church. That's not the project of the synagogue. The project of the church and the synagogue is to change the culture here to match what God says is appropriate in his Torah. So if you have gotten yourself, and you haven't, I know, but you've got friends who just say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with all that. This place is a real mess. This is terrible. Well, if Thomas and Alito had felt the same way, we would still have Roe versus Wade. Those are two religious men. And the others. The point here is somebody's laws are going to be enforced. It is either going to be the law of God or it is going to be the law of the secular world. And people who say you've got to keep your religion out of politics, out of the world and stuff, there's a word from that. Baloney. Don't ever be intimidated by standing up and saying that is wrong because God says so. And the church has been taken out of that business largely in the United States and in the West. Which is, by the way, why we had 50 years of Roe versus Wade, because the church became libertarian. Well, we don't believe in abortion, but I guess I can't tell you what to do. Yeah, you can. Somebody's laws will be enforced. It's either going to be God's law or it is going to be some secular cockamamie nonsense. Better that it be God's. So, go out and 
don't be shy about telling people that they're full of heifer dust and that their laws are wrong. Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says they're wrong. <laughs>